Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi everyone, and welcome along to the show. I feel pretty excited because we've just hit 10,000 listens of all the different episodes that have been recorded. This is the 44th episode, so there's quite a few in the back catalog, and I know that many of you have been ambassadors for the show, telling your friends and others, so I wanted to say thanks very much for helping to get to that milestone. On today's episode, we're speaking with the founder of Cookie Time, Michael Mayle, but he's also involved in a bunch of different ventures, including several which have a social enterprise element. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Michael. And failure and failed companies, the best way to think about them is compost for new ideas. And without Mm. failures, you've got no compost and nothing to work with. So I'm very grateful for these two failures. They informed and treated me and and taught me a lot. On next week's episode, we'll be continuing the entrepreneur and social enterprise theme as we talk with Samantha Jones, who founded Little Yellowbird. And we have a really amazing conversation about sustainable fashion and what it takes to operate a successful social enterprise. Now, before we dive into the interview with Michael, I did just want to say thanks again to all of you who are listening, subscribing, leaving a rating, a review, and telling friends about this show. I really appreciate it. Now, let's get into the interview with Michael. Right. So it's my pleasure to welcome Michael Mayle, who's a social impact, purpose-led activist entrepreneur. It's quite a nice title. Thank you, Steve. Um, And it's great to have you on the podcast. Um, What we do in this podcast is talk about the word purpose Mm -hmm. and what form that takes in people's lives. And in order to do that, I find it's quite helpful to talk about where somebody's from and then kind of work out what that means today and and what shape purpose takes in a person's life. So if we could go right back to the beginning and just talk about, give us a bit of background about where you're from. Well, uh, I was born in Dunedin and, and moved to Christchurch at the age of two and went through the state school system here in Christchurch, finishing up at Boys High, uh, left school at the beginning of the seventh form, uh, did, did some uh, practical work for a Lincoln College degree. Uh, at Lincoln College, I did six months of a three-year valuation and property management degree, left Lincoln College to clean toilets about 150 toilets a day at Crown Crystal Glass to save money to go on a on an overseas trip um, and be a ski bum for a year. After finding a uh, job, a, uh, a flat and, a, and purchasing a season pass, I'd been skiing for three days and I broke my arm, so I ended up coming back to New Zealand. And uh, because of that, I went to the Christchurch Polytech. I did a did one year of a of a two year basics of business course. And then at the end of that year, got a, uh, a dream job promoting Ski New Zealand in North America. And it was on that trip that I uh, was, was taken and stood in front of a Mrs. Fields hot cookie shop in Marin County, San Francisco. And uh, Diana Corbett, who, who I had told I was very keen to start my own business, stood me in front of this Mrs. Fields hot cookie shop and said, you should do this back in New Zealand. And um, Mrs. Fields at the time was a, was a raging success being copied and pasted all across America. Um, so I came back to New Zealand. I didn't have a job anymore. It was a short-term job. I had $10,000 in the bank. And I now decided it was time to start the business that 
I decided I was going to start when I was 18 but didn't have the confidence. And how, and how old were you at this point? I'm now 21. 21, yeah. So I'm 21, I've got $10,000 in the bank and, I'm, and I've decided, right, I'm going to start, start my own business because that's what I had come to the conclusion that was the right path for me. Mm. So I tried a couple of business ideas that failed. One was key ring ice scrapers and the other one was Christchurch City Night Spot Tours. Everyone always asks, what were they about? <laughs> um, so very basically, um, keyring ice scrapers was taking a piece of plastic in the shape of a triangle that my grandmother had sold as a pot scraper in the 50s, and I had a mould for it. So I had the mould punch out these pieces of plastic, and I put a keyring on them and called them a keyring ice scraper, made a box for them and sold one box to every service station in Christchurch. So... It was a success, and if you'd been in America, you might have made a million dollars from it, but you were definitely never going to make any money from that in New Zealand. Um, and the other business that was um, an even bigger failure, if you want to call it a failure, because failure, is, as I've come to learn, is, is just so critical. You cannot have success without failure, and failure and failed companies, the best way to think about them is compost for new ideas, and without mm. failures, you've got no compost and nothing to work with. So... I'm very grateful for these two failures. They informed and treated me and, 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 um, and taught me a lot. So um, Christchurch City Night Spot Tours, um, drunk, dri drink driving was just becoming socially unacceptable. And so my idea was to put on a minibus and take tourists on a tour of the five best night spots in Christchurch, giving them a drink at each place and, and, and dropping them back at their hotel at the end. The, uh, the, the, the project didn't even last one tour. The first tour that I ran was for the travel agents that were going to be selling it. And when we arrived at the Aranui pub, which was uh, capable of holding 200 people and there were six people sitting at the bar, I realised that this business idea wasn't going anywhere and that was the end of it. <laughs> and um, pretty much immediately after that, I remembered Mrs Fields Hot Cookies and Diana Corbett standing me in front of this hot cookie shop and I thought, that's what I'm going to do now. So, um, wow, so you went from these ice scrapers yes. to nightclub visits <laughs> yeah. to cookies. <laughs> exactly. It's quite a contrast of um, <laughs> ideas you were exploring. I was looking, basically, I was, I was a 21-year-old mm. ice cream addicted entrepreneur wanting to make a million dollars by the time I was 30. Right. That, so the that, entrepreneurial thing is the consistent across yes, all of them, isn't it? Absolutely. That yeah. And, and that, that entrepreneurial streak, do you, do you think you were born with it or had you grown to, um, you know, had it developed? Look, or? I had done other entrepreneurial things as a kid growing up. I'd been making, I had a small business running with my brother in the garage. We were making uh, garden refuge bags and selling them door to door. Mm. I had a dark room and I was selling my services to take photographs and develop pictures for people. Um, and I even sold some pictures from my locker at school. We won't tell mm. you what was on those pictures. <laughs> um, so, yeah. okay, so, it had, so, so it had been there right from the beginning, it sounds like. Even absolutely. as a child, you'd had this yeah. tendency towards entrepreneurial things. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. More, more so than others, I'm sure. Yeah. And um, so that my father was a general practitioner, so I really got a lot. I mean, my, my father's mother was a re a, an amazing entrepreneur, and, and my father was a general practitioner, but he was also an entrepreneur because he was a property developer and he was uh, buying sections and building houses on them. Mm. So it's definitely in my father and my grandfather and my grandmother and his mother's side. Right. And also um, my mother's 
father was a, re, a, a very successful retailer in Invercargill. So there was even entrepreneurism in that side of the family as well. Mm, mm, interesting. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I remembered being stood in front of the Mrs. Fieldtop cookie shop and uh, I thought, right, well, that's what I'm going to do now. So I got out a piece of paper and started calculating how much it was going to cost to open a shop, yeah. a and retail did, shop in a high foot traffic area. And what did you know about cookies and baking and that type of thing absolutely nothing at this point in time mm. but I was about to find out <laughs> so, <laughs> so I um, anyway basically I worked out very quickly that there was no way I could afford to copy Mrs Field's idea um, which was a hot cookie shop uh, in, a, in a high foot traffic area selling fresh cookies baked on site by the pound so one thing led to another and I ended up um, launching a big unwrapped cookie, um, four-inch diameter cookie with huge chunks of chocolate into mm. 70 cookie jars in 70 dairies uh, in Christchurch. The cookies wholesaled for 40 cents each and sold for 50 cents each. And uh, they were basically an overnight sensation, the complete opposite of the two businesses before. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and the first week, 5,000 cookies were sold. Uh, and the first year, $240,000 was turned over, and that's back in 1983. So mm. that's a pretty successful um, first year. And what did you learn from the two failures, or, or you know, whatever you wanted to call them, but those experiences that you took to that third business? The only thing that's coming to mind is just don't give up. And, and I wasn't going to give up. I was just going to basically keep on going until I found something that worked. Mm. And so if, if the cookies went, hadn't worked, there would have been something. Yeah, because basically what I decided at the age of 20 was if I have to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week to become a millionaire by the time I'm 30, I'm prepared to do it because... I can then sit around on the beach drinking pina coladas for the rest of my life if I want to. <laughs> so I was I was totally and utterly willing and committed to, to doing whatever it took. And mm. and I think because I went into the businesses with that um, with that background, mm. it just gave me the certainty mm. that I was going to get there eventually. Because mm. even if you just worked, even if all you did from the age of twenty to the age of thirty is work in a regular job and save every single penny and invest it. You, you'd blooming near be a millionaire by the time you were 30. Mm. So um, anyway, yeah. that, that was so the... it was the drive and the focus and the determination not to give up. That was the... Correct. ...unique yeah. factors. Yeah. 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 And, and how, long did it, it, how long did it take for the business to then grow and become what it's become today? Look, it pretty much uh, grew at 100% per year for the first three years. So it went 240, 480, 960, and then 1.2 million. And then, then the growth started slowing down. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you think about it now, we're doing $44 million turnover now, and we've been going 35 years. So we've really only been growing at about a million dollars a year. Mm -hmm. Well, at one stage, we were only growing about a million dollars a year. We just sort of picked it up in the last few years again mm -hmm. and seen, it, seen quite a bit more growth recently from some new initiatives that we've been doing. Um, so, you know, it, on the one hand, it's a roaring success. On the other hand, it's actually not that amazing, certainly not compared to Amazons and Airbnbs and, mm. and businesses like that. Mm. Uh, but, so, but it is, a, but in context, it is in New Zealand. So that's... Mm. Um, yeah, it's relatively lower population base yeah. and, and market, isn't it? Correct. And, and some of the listeners um, are maybe in America or... England or whatever. Yeah. Can you just describe a little bit about the range of products that you offer these days at, at yeah, Cookie Yeah, sure. Time? Yeah, so um, from one cookie, one large chocolate chip cookie 
based on the Toll House cookie recipe um, in 1983. Today, Cookie Time has uh, four brands, and the four brands are Cookie Time, Bumper, which is a granola, muesli granola bar range um, of, of uh, delicious muesli bars and other things that are starting to come into that brand now, including Bliss Balls. So Cookie Time, Bliss Balls, one square meal. Uh, one square meal is a completely balanced meal in a bar. It's got one third of the daily recommended intake of everything. So carbohydrates, fat, fiber, vitamins, calories, five vitamins and five minerals, all engineered uh, in that food bar to equal one third of the daily recommended intake. So the amazing thing about this product is if you could only choose one product and water for the rest of your life, this would probably be the one that would keep you going longest. Right. Right? You know, there's no other single product that has such a wide range of both macro and micronutrients. Mm. Um, And I guess, and and one square meal, sorry, and then the the other brand is really Christmas cookies because although Christmas cookies are a cookie time product, they have their own distribution system whereby um, we have this year 130 university students out selling Taking, going office to office, taking orders, and mm. then delivering them in yep. the last two weeks before Christmas. So those are the four brands, and we've got Cookie Time's got a fifth brand coming out um, next year, which is all about plant-based food, um, because there is a big shift away from uh, sugar, meat, and dairy uh, towards help uh, much healthier product, much healthier for you and for the planet products. Um, so that's the, the that, that, so that'll then mean that Cookie Time's got five brands. Um, we're also unique in that we have our own distribution system. So we have 50 vans on the road calling on 6,000 retailers every week. So we basically deliver our products directly to our customers. And that's very unique. There's only four companies in New Zealand that have their own distribution mm. um, delivering their own products into those outlets. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's the cookie time story, and, and it wouldn't be complete without mentioning my brother Guy, who joined me um, nine months after I started the business, um, and it was very much a match made in heaven with me with my feet on the ground and the accelerator. Sorry, me with my head in the head in the clouds, <laughs> foot on the accelerator. I'm a brother Guy with his feet on the ground, you know, and his foot over the brake. You know, sales and marketing, finance, production, and legal—we were a, we were a really good combination. Yeah, it sounds like a good team. To, yeah, it was to definitely combine. one on one equals three. Yeah, and and, um, and are all of your cookies still produced just here in Christchurch, or are there other places? Pretty much, most of our products are produced at our factory in Templeton mm. here in Christchurch, where we have a staff of a hundred people. Yeah, um, we also have some a couple of contract operations that contract make us our, our gluten-free cookies are contract made for us our christmas cookies are made in auckland by a specialist manufacturer who can make small cookies better than we can and our cookie dough that we export to our two retail cookie bars so we've got a retail cookie bar in queenstown and one in harajuku and um they are both receiving frozen lumps of cookie dough and that's manufactured by a specialist uh, dough manufacturer in Invercargill actually right yeah so that's well, the cookie time piece. Well, I have to say, when we when we drive by the factory, because uh, I've got young kids, yes, they always say, "Let's stop." <laughs> you can imagine. I can, and, um, and often we'll go in, and and you've got some coloring 
in the back. So right. do some coloring and, and get a cookie. Good, good. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the day that you open the doors for tours of the factory because I know for uh, speaking as a parent, you know, right. our kids would love to be able to see how to make cookies. So well, maybe you could put that on the agenda. Well, I can tell you we did used to have all-you-can-eat factory tours for a dollar. Wow. And, the, and when we launched them a, a long time ago, they were so successful that in the first nine days, in other words, Monday, uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm. we had 30,000 people come through, which was 10% of Christchurch's population. So you can imagine the, the, the queues and the traffic jams that were created by that. Mm. And um, that was one of a few amazing promotions that we did over the years because we also baked the world's biggest cookie in 1996. Right. So because we didn't have any money, we had to come up with creative ways of, of marketing and getting our story out there. Mm-hmm. And so those were two examples of things that were very successful. Mm. And we still today get people turning up at the factory saying, I'm here for a factory tour. Right. <laughs> and um, and I would love to bring them back sometime. But, but if we brought them back, I'm thinking we should have crawling tubes like they have in playgrounds. <laughs> you know, and so you can go on a crawling tour factory tour and I'm, I'm pretty uh, sure my kids would love that I'm pretty sure everyone <laughs> would love it yeah <laughs> oh, that's good so, um well i'd really love to talk with you about some of the other things that you're involved in as well because sure. before we started recording we realized that there was many different initiatives you've been involved in just before we do that can you because some people will be really interested in the cookie time story yes can you just maybe share with us one highlight and then one sort of thing that you learned from won't call it a failure, but, you know, something that over the years, because you've been doing it for decades yeah. now, right? Yeah. So um, not to, because we're kind of glossing over that oh, a little bit, but there's sure. lots to go through. Well, I think I think the first thing to say is that, you know, what, what you see today with cookie time and all its success, um, what you've got to realize is the number of failures that went on behind the scenes. Mm. Some of those failures were instant failures, like pizza time. Um, other failures lasted a year or two, like muffin time. Um, we have had dozens. We've had dozens of failures over the years. We had, Easter cookies was another product, and and actually Easter cookies is a great uh, is, is a really interesting one because we d- we did that for three years and we should have kept going with it um, because what I've learned now is that sometimes it just takes a bit longer for people to get onto things, mm. and the product was loved by the people that were eating it. Um, and it was a great product, and it was, a, and, and we had nothing else in that Easter market, and we should have persisted with it in hindsight. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, really, it, it just comes back to um, trying, trying, and failing, and and and, and keeping on, um, keeping on going, and, and realizing that success is actually all about failure. And the more you fail, the more you succeed. Right. So, so it's actually what you said at the beginning with your is. other operations you know that that didn't work out it gave you the drive to keep trying yeah yeah i think those are really good messages for people to hear because quite often uh particularly in a new startup business like i see them all the time coming for advice and and there's this feeling like well we have to we have to be facebook in the sense of it has to take off and we have to have a billion users or whatever you know like yeah but actually i think you're right it's it's putting things out trying failing Mm -hmm. and learning from it and then pivoting into well what does this mean we we thought the market was this but actually it's maybe pivoting over to this other market and 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 just to sort of reinforce that so many businesses i think the stats are 80 percent of businesses don't make it to five years Mm. And any business that makes it over five years and then makes it to 35 years, which will be next year in February next year with 35 years, 
you've reinvented yourself every five years. Mm. This business is not the same business that it was five years ago or five years before that or five years before that. And um, so you've got to be able, as business is constantly evolving, and you've got to be able to continue to evolve your story and your business. Mm. So um, how do you develop a culture of being agile and ready for a disruption or, or change that's coming? I don't know how you develop that culture. Let me think about it. Let's ask, ask me that question at the end of this okay, podcast we'll, we'll circle again. back to it. <laughs> and, and hopefully my subconscious has come up with an answer in the meantime. <laughs> it's just, I think it's really, I think it's important because the people who are listening in the yeah. sense of you've, you've, you've tried things, you've learned yeah. from them, you've then evolved yes, the business in different ways. Yeah. And it, it's so, um, it's such a critical part is yeah. the culture of the organization Absolutely. to be open to that. Yeah. And, and to, I guess, what I see anyway, in my perception is people, um, there's this great quote that says, um, you can't continue doing what brought you success in yeah. the past. You've got to be willing to change. Correct. And I think that's quite a big part of it. Just that totally. mindset change of what yeah. brought us success before may not bring us success in the future. Absolutely. Having that wider vision. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that comes to mind regarding culture is this, that there's a saying, the brand is everything and everything is the brand. Mm. And, and it also applies to the culture. Mm. I mean, really, culture is king. Mm. Culture is everything. And also, who wants to work in a business that doesn't have a great culture anyway? Mm. You know, I mean, that's how you attract great people, by yeah. having a great culture. Yeah. Well, if we agree that culture is so important, how do you go about creating a good culture? I think the culture just comes from, from, the, from me being there. I am the culture at the end of the day. I'm the, if I'm the founder of the, of the enterprise, then I bring my energy to everything. Mm, mm. And I guess that's kind of how it starts, isn't mm. it? So you I mean, once a- you get a good culture, then the culture takes care of itself because if you've got a culture of 10 people and someone arrives into the culture that doesn't fit, mm. the culture rejects them. They right. just don't feel comfortable, you know, they get... And eventually, the the culture actually ejects them. So once you've got a good culture, I think um, mm. you know it's going to partly take care of itself. Mm. Mm. No, that's good. Yeah. So, well, let's move on from cookie time. And sure. Um, how how would you frame the other things that you've gotten involved in? Given you talked about your past and your background, mm-hmm. now you're involved in a, a variety of other things. Yeah. What was it that has caused you to explore these other areas or ways of doing things look I think it's been a, it's been a journey that's brought me to where I am now obviously I basically moved from a from an ice cream addicted 21 year old entrepreneur wanting to make money and now as as you introduced me I'm a, I'm a purpose-led social impact activist entrepreneur and I only added the word activist to that list about a week ago um, and I'm actually thinking of dropping all the other terms and just just calling myself an activist because I've just become more and more aware of the problems that are going on on earth at the moment and um, I can't not do something about it Mm. Um, and I don't know and and, and in some ways it kind of started with one square meal because you know cookie time was a roaring success and I found myself thinking well, you know, we're a bit of a one-legged stool here. What if, what if people stop eating cookies? What if this health food trend that, that, that started back in 1983 when cookie time 
was born and, and cookie time was actually considered a health food back in 1983 because a chocolate chip cookie with eggs and butter is a lot more healthy than a Moro bar. You know, you can have two cookies and call it lunch. You couldn't have two Moro bars and call it lunch. And back in 1983, there were no cookies, muffins, cakes, slices, sushi. There was nothing like that. Um, and so I think that um, that one square meal sort of came about from me wanting to balance the treat aspect of cookie time with a food product, both in terms of the health food, but both for business reasons and also because I just didn't want to be seen as this guy that created the world's biggest cookie company. Um, I wanted to do something. I wanted to have something else on my tombstone. So in some ways, my journey sort of started there. And um, and 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 where it's got to now is that I find myself sitting across about six different projects, and all of these projects have pretty much the same thing in common. They're all about um, improving personal and planetary health. Um, personal and planetary health is 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 the theme underlying all of them. And, and Nutrient Rescue is the biggest and the most advanced of, the, of these projects that I'm working on. And so Nutrient Rescue's got two missions, and the two missions, the, t- the two social impact missions of Nutrient Rescue are, first of all, to help Kiwis dial up 10 servings of vegetables and fruit a day, because right now we are severely underdosing the amount of fruit and vegetables that we're eating. So 60% of New Zealanders do not eat the government's five plus um, fruit and vegetables or vegetables and fruit. Three fruit and three vegetables and two fruit is considered to be the minimum. Um, and as I said, 2.7 million Kiwis are not getting that. And, uh, and the optimum is 10 plus servings of vegetables and fruit. So that's what we're not getting, and what we are doing instead is we're overdosing on macronutrients, and the macronutrients that we're overdosing on are meat, dairy, wheat, sugar, and alcohol. And so the combination of underdosing on micronutrients and overdosing on macronutrients has led to the epidemics of diseases. Um, We've got cancer, obesity, diabetes, stroke, dementia and depression, all on exponential paths. And this is not just in New Zealand, but we're right up there. We're the third most obese country after America and the United States. And in fact, a nutritionalist I was speaking to six months ago said that she believes that New Zealanders are the most unhealthy people on the planet. And I haven't actually done the stats to confirm that, but essentially what she's saying is that if you added up how, where, we, where we rank on all of these measures, um, New Zealand would be right at the top of the pile. And, and essentially, we're eating far too much meat, dairy, wheat, which is all about gluten, uh, sugar, and drinking too much alcohol. And uh, that's leading to all of those um, degenerative diseases that we're suffering. Mm. So Nutrient Rescue is all about helping people dial up 10 servings of vegetables and fruit and dialing down um, the meat, dairy, wheat, sugar and alcohol Mm. component. And that brings us back to Nutrient Rescue's second mission. So the first mission is to help Kiwis dial up 10 servings of vegetables and fruit. And to do that, we've produced currently two um, plant nutrient powders or concentrates or dehydrated plant nutrient uh, products. The first one's called Green Shots 
and the second one's called red shots and green shots are wheatgrass, barley leaf, green pea, broccoli spout, manuka leaf and spearmint leaf and we just dry them, take away the water and put them in a package. So milk powder, animal powder, milk animal powder, plant nutrient powder. Um, and so one teaspoon of the green powder is equal to five, uh, is equal to three servings of vegetables. Mm. And the red, the red shot is 80% black currants and 20% boysenberries, and these are freeze dried. And one teaspoon of, of uh, red shots is equal to one serving of vegetable, uh, one serving of fruit, sorry, but it's got the micronutrient equivalent of five regular servings of fruit and vegetables because mm. black currants are, uh, are going to be the next manuka honey. They're an absolute superfood of superfoods, and everyone should be having a handful of dark skin berries every day. And it doesn't matter whether it's blueberries or black currants or boysenberries or anything purple. The purple you are seeing is anthocyanin, which is a very powerful micronutrient. Um, there's a huge amount of research about to come out on it. And um, whether you whether you use um, our red shots or just have some dark skin berries, a handful of dark skin berries, berries every day, um, is a very very good addition to your to your mm. diet. So the idea is that your product makes it easy for people to be having this because it, they Correct. can take the powder, they can make a yep. drink, and then they yes. can just That's drink right. their equivalent Correct. of however many. So yeah. we're not suggesting that this is a substitute for fresh fruit and vegetables because nothing's a substitute for fresh fruit and vegetables. Mm. Um, but it's, it's a convenient way of adding an extra four serves to your diet. So if you're currently below five servings of vegetables and fruit, then this will get you to five. If you're currently above five, this will get you to 10. Mm -hmm. And if you're currently above 10, we'll use our product when you have a stressful day or when you don't manage to eat well that day or when you're traveling. Mm. Why is it that you think we don't know as much as we could about the food that we're eating? I mean, just in society generally, you know, we, we yeah. go to a restaurant and we order or we go through the supermarket. Um, it, it's improving probably, but, yeah. you know, this this is things that we're putting into our bodies. I know. But quite often we, we don't You're make right. that mental sort of None jump of us, to... Well, I certainly it, didn't learn any of this at school. Um, and so I don't know that they probably are teaching a bit more of it at school now. But I mean, I know, for example, that in a, in a five-year medical degree, I think there's two weeks of nutrition. And so if you go to your doctor, you're not going to be advised to eat more fruit and vegetables because mm. that's not part of their training. Mm. Um, so if you sort of think about the health or the sickness industry, um, you know, you're not going to find out about it when you're sick. Mm. Um, so I guess you've got to find out about it through alternative means. And, mm. and a lot of people don't find out about it until they do get sick. Mm. And then, particularly things like cancer, and suddenly now they're, they're starting to think very, very seriously about what they're eating. Because mm, sometimes the health industry, I guess, not to overly, I'll just broadly brush here, but yeah. you know, it's getting a Band-Aid and putting it on an issue rather than yes. going back to the root cause yeah. of the issue, which maybe ultimately has That's something right. to do with the diet. And um, before we started recording, we were talking about just stress. Yes. And, and needing to have a day, for example, to look after the little things in life. Because yes. I think that is a case in, in our culture is that we, we kind of, 
you know, this is important stuff. Yeah. <laughs> what you eat, <laughs> junk in, junk out, right? Yeah, like, you, are, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. Yeah. yeah but or, you we, are, or you are what you digest. Mm. You know, the microbiome has suddenly become a thing. You know, no one even heard of the word microbiome. Have you heard of the word microbiome? No, I hadn't, no, heard I hadn't heard of it until six months ago. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I'm just hearing about these sort of things now. Yeah. You know, yeah. what about biophotons? Who's heard of biophotons? So biophotons are an amazing amazing thing plants emit light and the light that plants emit is called biophotons oh, okay and so there's been research that's that shows that the amount of biophotons that a plant is emitting um, from the time you harvest it it goes down very slowly the amount of light that the plants emitting goes down very slowly for for four hours and then it drops off very quickly mm. like an exponential curve in reverse mm. so it, it tends to suggest that food is best eaten within four hours of it being harvested which right. kind of makes sense it makes sense to me because just yesterday i was picking some strawberries and then noticed like not that long after they didn't look as good as exactly. they had when i just picked them <laughs> i mean there is no comparison between a strawberry eaten straight off the vine and yep. one that's four hours old yep. or eight hours old mm. or eight days old mm -hmm. so look the the, the, the sooner we can eat food, the, the fresher we can eat food, the better. Yeah. And also, and also, if we can avoid sprays, that's very important as mm, well, mm. because sprays are toxins or anti nutrients, and um, when you eat those, your body's got to basically deal with that toxin, mm. and that's going to use up valuable micronutrients and resources to remove that poison from your body. I see. Yeah, I interviewed um, Bailey Perryman from Cultivate Christchurch, oh, yes. and he had some great thoughts about, uh, I guess, just about some of the young people that he sees coming through the programs that they run, where maybe they're used to fast food and, and you know, have never really eaten well, and then he'll take them out and, and they'll be looking at the vegetables and, and actually breaking open the lettuce yeah. and eating the heart of the lettuce, you know, yeah. that it's such a pure... A, a pure thing and it's oh. so good for your body exactly <laughs> and i guess once you've once you've well yeah once you've tasted it it's it's maybe hard to go back yeah. to, the, to the yeah it's fair uh, we, we've lost a lot of our taste buds too with this over processed food that we're eating mm. you know a lot of people just can't don't don't like the taste of leafy greens now yeah. and the reality is i guess in many of our supermarkets lots of the the food has been imported yeah from Peru or you know wherever it is it's a long way away exactly. to be flown in cold storage and then transported yeah. and you know it, it's it's there but it's not really fresh and it's, it's not right. and it's definitely not local so yeah yeah oh that's good yes. so just um with I guess we've talked about nutrient rescue just some of the others maybe you could just give us a, a overview of some of them as well because mm. I'll just, I'll just complete the second part of that nutrient rescue story quickly. So our, yeah. our, the, the two purposes or the two missions are, first of all, to help Kiwis dial up 10 servings of vegetables and fruit um, and become the healthiest people on the planet. Mm. The second component of nutrient rescue is to create a global market for plant nutrient powders so that we can give dairy farmers something that they can grow, that they can make more money from. Mm. Um, dairy farmers need marketers to find the solutions for them. They are amazing farmers and do an incredible job on the land. Um, they need people like me to get out there and, and create markets for new products that they can grow. And so uh, that's the second part of the nutrient rescue story. Mm. And I guess the other way to just sort of round out the, 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 the nutrient rescue story, so nutrient rescue, currently we've got uh, red shots and green shots, fruit and vegetables. We've got an orange shot coming out, which is all about herbs. 
So that one's going to be turmeric, ginger, cinnamon, cardamom, shiitake mushrooms and black pepper. And that's all about turmeric, which is the most studied herb on the planet. So essentially we've got anthocyanins in the, in the red shot, we've got leafy green chlorophyll in the green shot, and we've got turmeric in the orange shot. So these are three very, very powerful micronutrients. And so we're providing not just fruit and vegetables, but two of the most powerful of the fruit and vegetables that there are. And the same applies to the orange shot with turmeric. So fruit, vegetables, herbs. Next up is seeds. And this is all related to hemp seeds or cannabis seeds, the seeds from the cannabis plant. So um, right now, New Zealand and Australia are the only two countries in the world where hemp seeds are illegal. They were made illegal when New Zealand made cannabis or marijuana as a drug illegal, uh, kind of by accident. But anyway, that law has changed. And as of the middle of next year, uh, Nutrient Rescue will be selling whole hemp seeds. Uh, and, and there is a huge market globally for whole hemp seeds as well. So that's seeds. And then, of course, we've also got nuts. So essentially, when Nutrient Rescue is going to continue on the path from fruit, vegetables, herbs, seeds, nuts. Okay. So that's, so that's the Nutrient all, Rescue story. That's the Nutrient Rescue story, yeah. In a nutshell. It's, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I hear you. I, I see where it's at and your vision for where it's going to go as yeah. well. And then maybe one or two of the other things that you're so, involved in. So the other, thing, the other thing that's happening to me is I'm becoming um, more and more conscious of my personal environmental footprint. And for example, um, for the first time ever, I didn't upgrade my iPhone when the new iPhone came out just recently. Mm-hmm. I've just recently sold my Porsche and I'm now driving a 100% electric Nissan Leaf. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also building a tiny autonomous movable home. Mm. And um, so this is, a, this is a, a tiny home on wheels. I don't like the word tiny home. I'd rather call it a micro home than a tiny house. <laughs> right. um, and so this is a house that, um, that, that's, that's autonomous. And what that means is, is that the, uh, it has a solar roof. So the roof is actually a solar panel. Mm. Um, it has charging a battery it also has a wind generator charging the battery it Mm. collects the rainwater off the roof Um, it has a compostable toilet um, and it's well insulated and so essentially you can live in this thing without being plugged into any services Mm. and the idea is that you you could create a community with you know a dozen of these and then a shared space which has a commercial kitchen a commercial laundry a big screen tv um, and it's for meetings and yoga and, um, and, um, and whatever you want to use it for, and the whole community would be run on an app. So this, this idea is called Our Neighbourhood, and there's a group of people, there's about six or seven of us now, who have said, I'm in for this, so mm-hmm. we're actively looking for land right now, and all going to plan, I'll, by this time next year I'll have a tiny home, and I'll be living in, a, in an intentional community with a group of other social entrepreneurs who are all out to make a difference. Hmm. Um, it's my stage of life is such that it allows me to do that. Um, and I'm also thinking I might buy a tiny home for all of my children and say, here, this is my gift to you, your home. You can do what you like with it. You can't sell it, but, <laughs> but it's your home for the rest of your life. If you want to Airbnb it, you can. Um, and it's a place for you yeah. to uh, put your stuff and to have a home. 
Mm. Um, so that's um, that's one of the other projects that I'm working on. Yeah, well, that that fits well because one of the, the this podcast we talk a lot about purpose, and I think um, the thing that I'm picking up from you is that you've really um, been impacted by the state of the world and where things are at. Yeah. But not only just in a talking about it way. You know, what you're saying is you've actually sold your fancy car yeah. and you're buying a, a you yeah. know, like a, there's actual action that you're taking absolutely there. yeah is that something that is only recently happened for you or has it been something that's been building for years or just trace that it's for just us? basically every time the, the more i find out about things mm. the more i have to do something about it mm. i've got I've but got if a, we went back like five years ago or ten years ago if i met you would okay. you have been the same mindset or were you on a journey? Well, okay, like so where- three, three years ago, I bought a brand new hybrid Porsche. So this is a Porsche that's both a, a battery, an electric engine and a petrol engine. Mm. And I thought, this is the car for me. It's, it's the best of both worlds, right. right? I've now shifted and gone, I don't want to... F- I yeah. don't, that is, I would rather drive my Nissan Leaf than a Porsche now, mm. right? I just, that is, that is who I am now. Right. Right? So that reflects my there. values now. So that's like a, that's two and a half, three years. Wow. I've gone from, from a hybrid Porsche to a 100% Nissan Leaf, which is a $17,000 import from Japan. Mm-hmm. And um, I've owned a lot of cars in my life. And I have to say that there's only one car that I would put above the Nissan Leaf, mm. which was an Audi Quattro Turbo Coupe. Um, but other than that, this is my favorite car of every car that I've owned. Wow. So your journey is continuing to evolve. Absolutely. It's continuing to evolve. And, and I came across an amazing quote by Albert Einstein the other day that kind of sums it up, which is that those that have the privilege to know have the duty to act. And so I'm just, I just cannot not do something now. Um, I've woken up and I've seen the challenges and I've got to do, I've got to be the change, right? I've got to be the change and lead by example. And I love it. I'm loving it. I'm becoming a minimalist and, I, and I'm feeling better. I think that the less you have, the more you have. Mm. And so I'm, 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 I'm heading towards as little as possible. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, I like it. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, on this light. podcast. I'm going to be light. We, um, <laughs> you're going to be very light. I'm going to be light. Well, <laughs> and, and funnily enough, light is the name of one of the other projects that I'm working on. And this okay. one, in many ways, is the most exciting project that I've got going. Great. Um, well, tell us about that. Partly um, because Nutrient Rescue is kind of up and running. And, I, and, 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 and this one here is still very much in the forming, creation, mm. brain storming um, phase which is the phase that I thrive in mm. and so light is um, is a better faster cheaper way of getting food to people than the current industrial um, food complex that is delivering us this obesogenic environment mm. that I talked about before so we've got you know the old model or the way we're eating at the moment is we grow the food in monocultures using sprays and petrochemicals and fertilizers, and then we truck it and using fossil fuel trucks to mass food processing, mm. pizza factory, cookie factory, soup factory, um, and we manufacture the product and put it into packets, and we have to put preservatives and 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 and, and package it up so that it can sit on the shelf of a supermarket because we move into mass retailing, and so now the product sits on shelves in mass retailing, and you drive there in your car and pick it up and drive it home 
and then you take some to work and it's very, very inefficient. It's, um, uh, and for example, 40% of all the food that leaves the factory gate is wasted somewhere in that pipeline. And there's massive amounts of packaging. You know how much packaging you end up with or how much rubbish you end up with at the end of each week? Mm. Multiply that by everybody living in the Western world. Mm. So that's the old model. The new model is Uber meets Airbnb for food. So that's, um, that's what, where this construct has ended up. So essentially, here's how it works. Everything's going to happen locally and it's all going to be enabled by an app. Right, So this was not possible five years ago. Mm. So the idea is that we're going to grow food, not lawns, um, and raise planter boxes, food forests. We're going to grow the food in the suburbs where it's, where it's actually going to be consumed. The food is going to be then prepared into meals, snacks, and drinks using kitchens that are underutilized, much like Airbnb uses bedrooms that are underutilized. All these kitchens in the suburbs are only being used for three hours a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, one hour each. So we can prepare the food in the kitchens. We can put it into reusable containers, and now you can order that food on an app. And when you order the food on an app, you can either choose to pop in and pick it up off Mrs. Brown, or you can have Johnny on his e-bike. He's the Uber part of the equation. You can jo have Johnny on his e-bike pick up the food from Mrs. Brown and bring it round to you. And he earns a, a little bit of cryptocurrency because this would all be done on the blockchain and be done using a new form of, of currency, um, which means that we don't have transaction fees every time we want to make a little transaction. We don't have you know, one of these credit card companies clipping the ticket for a couple of percent. So it's all about dropping the cost mm. to everybody. So mm. we're going to grow food, not learns. We're going to cook it in kitchens in the suburbs. We're going to move it using kids on e-bikes. This is the, the, the milk boy of the future. We're going to order it on an app. When we've finished eating it, we're going to put these reusable containers out at our front door and we're going to notify the app that there's containers at the front door and the next time Johnny's passing by on his bike, he picks that up and takes it to the nearest composting because you can't grow food mm. without compost. So rather than all our green waste from whatever suburb you're living in mm. going somewhere else, we'll keep it locally and we'll use that to help grow the food. Um, and then the other way you could make money on this system is, for example, you could be an educator. So you could teach people how to make plant-based food or you could uh, teach people how to grow food in the, in the backyard. Um, and the final way that you could make money or contribute to this new economy is by, by renting your land. So you might have a backyard mm. that you don't personally want to grow food in, but you'd be happy to let the neighbour grow food in there for $50 a week, which you would then be able to use to buy food. Mm. So this is, um, this is a project that's um, well underway at the moment. There's about a 50-page white paper being written on it. And there's a team of about, well, there's a team of three of us sort of fully focused on it and a, and a wider group of probably another 17 that are contributing in, mm. in small amounts and little bits from time to time. Oh, that's great. I mean, uh, what I love about our conversation is there's been so many different tangents here <laughs> yeah. to go from 
the beginning, you know, scraping ice off of the windows. <laughs> From Kiwi <laughs> ice scrapers to light food with a story. That's right. <laughs> so that's been awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree. Well, the, the focus on technology and the intersection of technology and blockchain and what that opens up yeah. in terms of the future is, you know, it's a fascinating yeah. topic. So is that something you'll develop a white paper and then sort of see where it goes and maybe develop it into a, a, a company or some something like that? Absolutely. We're, yeah. we're looking for, we, we're just trying to create the structure and what exactly how this thing stitches together and what it looks like. And, yeah. and the, we're pretty much at the phase now where we're ready to get started in terms of putting together the financial structure. Mm. And because it's all new, being you know blockchain and, and cryptocurrency oriented, this is all new. So we've got to get our head around something mm. that, we've, that we don't know anything about. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of learning to do to be able to understand it enough to be able to create something. Mm. And, I, and I, I'm pretty sure um, regulators and governments are also going, what does this all mean for us? Exactly. <laughs> because uh, if you're no longer dependent on the currency of the of the place that you yeah. are, then that has big implications, doesn't it? Yeah. And just thinking back over all the topics we've covered, just if you could go back to give yourself some advice, you know, you've, you've um, just finished your nightclub tour business <laughs> and it wasn't a success is there anything that you'd say or 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 do you feel like you were able to learn from those things um you know given given the clearly you're on a journey even two or three years ago this conversation would have been quite different Completely. which i find i find that's really encouraging as well because i think we're each on journeys aren't we yes. and we're each learning and growing and if i can be different in two or three years as a result of conversations i've had then you know, that's a, that's a positive thing. That's yeah. a, a living thing. Um, but just for yourself, like, what, what sort of things would you say to that maybe 20-year-old self, you know, the one who'd gone off and been stood in front of the uh, cookie shop? I don't know. For some reason, the word synchronicity is, is popping into my mind here. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm finding at the moment is that the amount of synchronicity that's happening in my life is, is increasing exponentially. So more and more, uh, yeah, and so... So what does that word mean to you? What does synchronicity mean? Because I've heard other people use it, and I'm, I think everybody's using it slightly differently. Right. So I'm just curious. Um, well, well, just yeah, um, okay, so what does that word mean to me? Well, the first thing is, is a quote that comes to mind, which is that synchronicity is the universe saying yes. Mm. And synchronicity is where, um, where things, things start happening that are just too strange to for words. I'm not explaining this very well. So the old way of describing it might be that doors were opening that right. you didn't expect, maybe. Like, yes. like, I wanted to do this, and then this door opened, and yeah. then I could do it. That's kind of that kind of image or yeah. that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that kind of thing. Mm. Um, yeah, I've got a bit of a mind blank going on on the actual synchronicity definition at the moment mm. um, how it's how it's occurring for me is that I'm having conversations with people and it, oh goodness okay so he, here's an example mm. I was standing at the coffee machine at the world social enterprise forum mm -hmm. um, and I was waiting for a coffee, and there was another gentleman standing there, and I turned round and said a few words to him, and he said a few words back to me, and, I f and, we, and we fell in love, right? If this person was a woman, you would say it was love at first sight. 
So um, just the way we both spoke to each other and what, how we communicated and what we said just resonated completely. And so I started telling him about a new idea, which is better, faster, cheaper Red Bull, which is one of the other projects that I'm working on. Um, and he proceeded to tell me that his wife is the social impact director of Red Bull. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we're talking about someone who. So, 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 so the chances that of that happening, the coincidence, the coincidence <laughs> of that yes. is just. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, it's like. So that's that, definitely that, a door opening. That is, that is like. Yeah. You know, you just you just basically look. It's happening to me now. I mean, yeah. basically, what happens is when that sort of thing happens, I get massive goosebumps on my arms and right. my hairs stand on end as they are right now, and I just like. I just shake my head at the, the at the synchronicity of it all, right? <laughs> yeah. at, at the wonder of it all, sure. at the yeah. amazingness of this, and it's kind of like it's a sign that you're on your path, that you're on that you're on a on on, on a right on the right path. Mm-hmm. And so we are now, he and I and another person are now co-creating, um, better, faster, cheaper Red Bull, mm. right? Yeah. Okay. So, no, um, I get it. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. And, so, and just uh, maybe just to wind down in the interview, just thinking about that word purpose, um, what does it mean to you? Purpose. Um, it means this. It means don't ask me what I do for a job. Ask me what I do for the world. Purpose is about what you're doing to, 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 um, to add or just looking at a note here, or to contribute to the earth, Mm. right? How are you contributing? And I wrote a quote yesterday, actually. It says this. It says, it's simple. Get all your needs met while contributing to, not extracting from, the earth, our mother. So, you know, I think we all need to seriously consider our own individual um, environmental footprint or footprint because it's okay to fly around the world on commercial jets if you A, buy the carbon credits and or B, are going somewhere to help someone to help a village in need or to do or to meet people to sell them on the idea of investing in social impact ventures or something. Mm. But you know, if each individual person starts measuring their own personal impact Right, and make sure that they're a net positive rather than a net negative, then we'll be there. Mm. And, and it's kind of like, you know, the, the wonderful thing about the challenge that we've got ahead of us is that, you know, if people say, oh, what can one person do? There's no point. Well, that's correct. But if everyone does something, it's done. Mm. So we all have to get together and all of us do something Right, and then the job will be done. So this is actually going to force us to come together as one to make this world what it can be, which mm. which is amazing with seven A's. Mm. Amazing. No, I so, like that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's very good. That's very helpful. I've really enjoyed talking with mm. you, and I think what I might do is see maybe next year we can have another chat about sure. some of these other initiatives because we haven't really had time to do yeah. justice 
And so we haven't touched on some of the other things, the other other things no, that, that we haven't even talked about. Um, um, yeah, but I've really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, just you. wanted to say thank you for your time. Thanks for coming and, and having a chat with me. My pleasure. And I would just like to finish, if I could, with this yeah. one little statement. So this is about, so I've had a personal journey from, you know, from, from, from an ice cream addicted entrepreneur wanting to make money to mm. a purpose-led social impact um, activist and um, part of that journey is that I'm now a whole food um, plant-based mostly vegan um, eater and um, and that journey started off with realizing the impact of eating meat and dairy on my health and then it went to the environment and realizing the impact of environment on the environment as far as animal agriculture is concerned and then I then I've become aware of, of, of the of the um, of the animal suffering component so I've written this little ditty that sums up mm-hmm. why I think everybody needs to significantly dial down meat and dairy mm-hmm. um, and dial up whole food, whole plant food and it goes like this eating and farming 71 billion animals is a personal health hazard an environmental catastrophe, an animal holocaust, fueling drug-resistant superbugs, supporting the cycle of suffering which gives rise to negative karma. So for humanity's sake, please don't be the last to go. Whole food, plant-based, vegan. So I, I encourage everybody to dial down their consumption of meat and dairy mm. for your health, for the environment, and for the animals. Mm. And I can tell you from personal experience, I have so much energy from this new way of eating. And I've only been eating this way for two years. Mm-hmm. And it's a big change and a big transformation. And, it, and it's very, very difficult to go from the diet that we're all completely used to eating mm-hmm. to a more whole food, plant-based, local and organic um, diet, but um, try it. Go vegan for a month and see how you feel. I mm. think you'll be you'll be amazed. Mm. Well, there's been lots of challenges here for people. <laughs> <laughs> and if they want to connect with what you're doing, um, yep. what we'll do is in the in the show notes, we'll put some links to sure. the websites for Nutrient Rescue yep. and, and other uh, other endeavors. Yeah, my, I've got my, I've got a website, michaelmail.com, that's got okay. a little bit of stuff on it. And you can so maybe that's where they can start things, yeah. and. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll put those in the show notes. But uh, again, and I think it would be great to have you on again. I'd like to explore still your journey and the transformation of the last couple of years. Yeah. In particular, talking about the word coherence and incoherence. Oh yes. Which is something that we didn't really we didn't get, get into. We didn't get into that at all. But yeah. just you know the, um, I guess you know the background of cookie time here. Yes. Is a contrast, yeah. I think you'll agree, to all these other things that yeah. you've been talking about in terms of nutrient rescue and, That's right. and other things. Yeah, so so we'll, what we'll have to do is have a part two. <laughs> but we I'm, can definitely arrange that. We, I'd love it. We both live here. So yeah, really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me no today. No problem. My pleasure. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. Well, I think you'll agree that Michael had some great insights there. In particular, the thing that stood out to me was the emphasis on failure and the important role that that plays in turning something into a success. Now, in next week's episode, we're going to be speaking with Samantha Jones from Little Yellowbird. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Samantha. I think one of the reasons, you know, and we've gone through ups and downs and made mistakes and all of those things that a, a new business does, but we've never been afraid to try anything. We always jump at any opportunity we can. Um, 
and yeah most of the time we get it right um and when we get it wrong we work really hard to to fix any problems that we we do uncover well i do hope you can join me for that and other upcoming episodes and if you have a moment please leave a rating or review in the podcast app that you're using to listen to this there will be somewhere on the screen where there's some stars or something like that so it's pretty easy to leave a rating and it just helps other people find the show as well until next time Mm -hmm.